You're listening to the EHA Hematology Podcast, Episode 1, A Brief History of Hematopoietic Stem Cell Transplantation. Welcome back to this first episode of EHA's Hematology Podcast. This is the podcast where you can listen to passionate experts in hematology talking freely about highlights in their fields of expertise. Today's episode speaker is transplantation expert, Professor Sean McCann. Well, Sean, the mic is yours. Hello, my name is Sean McCann. I'm, or I was, a haematologist in Ireland, and I carried out the first, as it was then, bone marrow transplant in Ireland in 1984. I'm making this brief podcast for the European Haematology Association, the EHA, on the topic of bone marrow transplantation, or probably more correctly known as hematopoietic cell transplantation, or HCT for short. What I'm going to do, uh, uh, but first of all, I should say the podcast is aimed at trainees and those of you entering uh, transplant HCT programs and not for old people uh, like me. Uh, I'm going to break up the podcast into three parts. First of all, I'm going to give you a little bit of the historical uh, background to how we arrived at transplantation. Then we'll talk about the early days and the difficulties, and then the changes that have taken place over time. And we'll finish up with an interesting historical perspective and something about the psychology of transplant as it pertains to patients. Uh, I'm going to start with a quote from the famous historian E.H. Carr, who said there is no such thing as history, there are only historians. So everybody writes things down or remembers things slightly differently, and I'm going to try and give you or point you to what I think, anyway, are the major historical landmarks in HCT. I should also say that radiation has a paradoxical relationship to transplantation in that we know that radiation causes leukemia, but we know that we use radiation as part of the preparation for most patients undergoing HCT. As uh, many of you will know, the impetus or the beginning of modern transplantation started in Los Alamos in New Mexico during World War II with the development of the atomic bomb under Oppenheimer and Enrico Fermi, although again, there were lots and lots of people involved. Um, The initial observation was that ionizing radiation resulted in the death of laboratory animals, usually mice, who died from either bleeding or infection, presumably due to bone marrow failure. Now, interestingly, from my conversation with a few survivors, Uh, of of the uh, uh, Manhattan program, there was very little, if any, discussion between the physicists and the biologists. So when I talk to some physicists now, they're completely ignorant of the fact that their important physics research actually stimulated the development of transplantation. The other uh, laboratory, which was extremely important in the early days in developing animal models, was the TNO in the Netherlands run by Dirk van Beckham. And many, many of my colleagues today worked in his laboratory. 
Uh, two people who I'm, I'm just picking out who were very important in terms of the clinical development of trans transplantation were a man called Leon Jacobson, who was able to show that shielding the spleen, which, by the way, in a mouse is a hematopoietic organ, um, would prevent animals, these animals, from dying if they were exposed to a lethal doses of radiation. And the second was, in 1950, a very famous postcard sent by a man called Egon Lawrence from Windermere in England to his laboratory manager uh, called Uphoff. And in it, he suggested that the transplantation of um, bone marrow from litter mates one to another might be a successful way of preventing them dying from the toxicity of radiation. By the time he got back to America, she had completed the experiments. Now, there are, there are many different people uh, uh, using experimental techniques and involving different types of animals, uh, inbred mice, as I've said, rats. And the team in Seattle, of which Reiner Storb was a very important person, uh, used dogs. Dogs live longer, obviously they're much bigger, and uh, they, they are a probably a better model for clinical transplantation as we know it now. Uh, from the clinical point of view, the most famous names are Don Thomas, George Mathay, and George Santos, although, of course, there were many more. And another uh, uh, thing which is very important for you to remember is that new ideas, whether they be in medicine or in any other walk of life, are often criticized and rubbished by the establishment. And a man called Nyman in 1868 and his colleague, Julio Bizezaro, if I pronounce that correctly, had the idea of stem cells, and this was totally rubbished, by, particularly by the establishment in France. And of course, it turned out they were absolutely right. Uh, clinical transplantation uh, started really in 1956, uh, when um, Don Thomas and his team successfully transplanted genetically identical twins, although it was shown that even then you needed some form of immunosuppression. In 1958, a man called George Maffei tried transplantation on workers in Vinca in what was then Yugoslavia, who were accidentally exposed to radiation. And although he used many different uh, um, uh, people for transplantation, there's no evidence that it really actually worked. Um, between 1940 and 1970, a lot of people tried transplantation and the results were uniformly bad. A man called Bort Morton in America uh, looked at 200 transplants between 1940 and 1969. All recipients died. So you really needed someone who was very tenacious to continue as many people left the field subsequent to that. And the man who was most tenacious of all probably was Don Thomas in, the, in Seattle and in the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And he published a major paper in 1975 in the New England Journal of Medicine, which showed for the first time in a large cohort of patients that stem cell or bone marrow transplantation, as he called it then, was able to cure leukemia. Since then, of course, the source of hematopoietic cells has widened uh, with the use of mobilized peripheral blood 
1989, the first use of umbilical cord blood. Now, umbilical cord blood, although it has many people who are very enthusiastic about it, uh, does have a re relatively limited use because size does matter. And the thought of using one or two umbilical cord bloods with a volume about 50 mLs into a 200 kilogram uh, footballer probably uh, uh, would be unsuccessful. So, as I said, size matters. Um, the other uh, uh, two, I, I think anyway, uh, huge developments were the, the, the identification of haploidentical transplants. This is giving the cyclophosphamide after engraftment, uh, pioneered by George Santos. And again, took a long time to get his colleagues to accept that giving cyclophosphamide after the infusion of the graft would be successful. Took a long time to persuade them. Uh, more recently, and I guess the cutting edge therapy will be the use of CAR T cell therapy in many diseases, acute leukemia and multiple myeloma. Whether that will make bone marrow transplanters or stem cell transplanters or HCT uh, redundant or not remains to be seen. My bet is that stem cell or HCT will still be around for the foreseeable future. Uh, a lot of um, practical changes occurred over the last 30 or 40 years. Initially in the unit in Seattle, which was the largest uh, transplant center in the world, when I went there in the early 1980s, used laminar airflow rooms. These proved to be very cumbersome, expensive, and really are not used in modern purpose-built centers. And they use a, a positive pressure ensuite rooms instead, which are much more user-friendly. The other invention which I think changed things forever was the invention by the pediatric nephrologist Hickman of the so-called right atrial catheter or the Hickman catheter. It seems a very simple thing, but it made access, venous access to patients possible. And it also allowed us to give uh, total parenteral nutrition because most patients, certainly in the early days, after what we call a myeloablative conditioning, didn't eat anything for two or three weeks following the procedure. The other three remarkable uh, changes were the advent of more modern antibiotics, the use of platelet transfusions on demand. You need to remember that when I started transplant in the early 80s, platelet transfusions were not available on demand, and that's been a huge asset, and uh, obviously to patients as well as to physicians. And lastly, but not leastly, the development of antifungal therapy. Although fungal infection still poses a significant problem in terms of patient care, um, hopefully in the not too distant future, we will have, we developed potent non-toxic antifungals and good diagnostic tests. So if you were to look at the transplant population at the moment and ask yourself, what are the main problems which they face? Well, I think they fall into three categories. One is acute toxicity. And this has been, to a large extent, tackled by the use of what we call reduced intensity uh, conditioning, which initially was aimed at making transplant available to older patients 
um, I wouldn't say like me, but certainly in their 60s and 70s. Uh, and yes, there has been no, and probably never will be, a head-to-head comparison between so-called myeloablative conditioning and reduced intensity. So um, they're, they're used at physician and patient choice. The second main problem, which still is a bugbear, in spite of all of our advances, is relapse. The major cause of death in patients with hematological malignancies is still relapse of the original disease, and we still haven't got a complete handle on that. And lastly, but very important, is what we call long-term toxicity. That is, patients who are cured of their leukemia or other diseases but who have long-term complications, the major one being infertility in females. And in my experience of uh, talking to patients prior to HCT, the one thing that caused the tears to flow was the announcement that after transplant, they would probably be infertile. So it's still a huge problem. Now, there are many, many ways around that, but none are completely successful. Um, I think what the current development of transplant shows is absolutely unprecedented cooperation across countries and continents by doctors. Uh, so it has now made the, uh, 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 shall we say, the procedure available in practically every country in the world. An area which I feel strongly about is the lack of interest in doctors on the psychological impact of transplantation on patients. I carried out a very large prospective randomized study and uh, published the results in 2011. And in spite of showing clearly that a multimedia art intervention could reduce anxiety and completely change the expectation of the difficulties of patients undergoing HCT, doctors universally showed little if no interest. I, tried, I presented the results from uh, Singapore to San Francisco. And as I say, unfortunately, got very little interest, I should say, including in my own colleagues. And I'm going to finish up with a little story, um, which is actually a bit of history. And it's in the, probably in a book called On Thoin Bokulna, written in Ireland in the 8th century AD. And in that, there's a clear description of a wounded soldier who thought he would die being immersed in a tub of bone marrow for three days and three nights. The bone marrow came from calves, uh, young cows. So I suppose you could say it was, it was the first example of a successful xenograft, as far as we know, in the literature. He was cured after three days and three nights, jumped out of the tub of bone marrow and ran away holding his shield to his belly to stop his entrails from falling out. We have no evidence of whether he had graft versus host disease or not. And I, I should also add in there that in spite of all of the uh, interventions to treat graft versus host disease, we still have not superseded steroids. And steroid-resistant graft versus host disease continues to be a major problem. So there are a few of my thoughts on stem cell transplantation. And if you would like a more comprehensive view of this topic, I would suggest you would look at an essay in the book, Hematopoietic Cell Transplants, Concepts, Controversies and Future Directions by Bob Gale and myself. 
Also, my book, From Herodotus to HIV, published by Oxford University Press. Read Reiner Storm's Beautiful History of Transplantation in the 2019 EBMT Handbook. And lastly, but not leastly, uh, a lovely essay by Alwas Grotwal, Mohammed Mothi, and Jane Apperley on the history of the EBMT, which is contained again in the 2019 EBMT Handbook. So I wish you every success in your endeavors, and hopefully you will be successful in HCT now and in the future. That was Professor Sean McCann for Episode 1 of EHA's Hematology Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, be sure to read up on Sean's suggestions. And for other topics, we highly recommend the rest of this podcast series. For now, thank you for listening. And hey, if you're passionate about hematology yourself, why not contact us and star in your own podcast episode? You can reach us at info at ehaweb.org. Goodbye.